Christina Minemeyer's influence has grown well beyond her Mexico City roots. More than 1.5 million people around the world recognize her fine art photography and the images she's created for the pages of National Geographic. Having traveled to more than 120 countries, Christina has dedicated her life to protecting and sharing the compelling stories of indigenous peoples, women and girls, and of course, the needs of our oceans. She is a Sony artisan of imagery, a National Geographic woman of impact. She's a founder of the International League of Conservation of Photographers and also a co-founder of Sea Legacy. Christina invites you into her photographs today and, most importantly, her love affair with the oceans. This is her story. Welcome to Sippin' On Stories, where we take you into the lives of diverse and unique change makers who turn anxiety, fear, and passion into powerful recipes for success. Good stories build insightful connections, but great stories. Now, that's something special. Today's story is one of those stories. Hi, welcome back. My name is Rose McInerney. You are in for a real treat today with our Sipping on Stories episode. It is all about sipping on water. And we are privileged to be able to sip along with Christina Minemeyer. She's an award-winning National Geographic photographer, a Sony Artisan Award winner, and just a woman of incredible talents. Um, thank you so much for listening. Before we go any further, I'm going to ask you to hit that subscribe button. Please give us a five-star rating to encourage others to come and listen to our fascinating episodes of women and men from around the world building change. If you are a YouTuber, you're going to want to head over to our Sipping on Stories channel as well and just watch the conversations as they unfold. It's, it's a, a nice way to experience the podcast. As well, I'm going to give a big shout out to Womanscape.com. They are a living library of people building change. If you head to the Womanscape.com website, you can see Christina's story there. It's a wonderful feature by Erica Hilton, and there's an incredible digital download and print magazine that Womanscape.com puts out that fuels the stories you hear on Sipping on Stories. So without any further ado, let's hop into the lounge. Who are we talking about today? We're meeting an incredible change maker. She's worn a number of different hats. You'll hear her story, how she started from her native Mexico City as a marine biologist and the evolution over the course of her life, her love affair with photography. She's raised three children, traveled all over the world. And what she's doing now is going to move you as much or more than any other visionary you've heard. She's dedicated her life to being a steward of the ocean. She lives a very simple, simple life and she is all about authenticity. She's created with her partner, Paul Nicolin, they've created a sea legacy, which really is about drawing awareness and telling the stories of the incredible life, the ecosystem in our oceans that so many of us really know little about. So I think today's episode is going to 
give all of you amateur photographers as well a little sneak peek behind the scenes, what it's like, why it is that more than a million and a half people follow Christina's feeds, what she has to say about standing shoulder to shoulder with each other in the world. How can we make a difference? She's got, lastly, some amazing advice on how to live, how to sip the best that you can of your story in life. So without any further ado, we're going to head on into the Sipping on Stories Lounge and we're going to meet with Christina. Thank you so much, Christina, for being here. It is an absolute honor, Rose. Thank you and good morning. Oh, good morning. I know we were chit-chatting. I wanted to make sure that you had a cup of coffee and you were sipping on something this morning with me. I've got my java. So I've, I'm, I'm already finished my third cup of coffee, so I'm switching to water. Wow. What time does your day normally start? Is it all over the map? No, it normally starts around 6.30 or 7, but this morning I was up at 5.30, so... Wow. Okay. And you're just back from travels. You've been, this is a little, a small little stop along the way, right? So (laughs) travels, we basically drove across the entire length of Canada uh, to get to where our boat is. So we left from Vancouver Island by car towing our camper trailer and it took us 12 days to, we, we live in a beautiful continent, you know, we crossed Canada and then we dropped down to the U.S. and kept going. It's just beautiful. So they, those are my, they're COVID travels. So we brought the camper to stay, you know, away from crowds. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And you know, I'm Canadian, I think, right? I read that you're Canadian. Yeah. I am about to become Canadian. I'm excited. Oh, congratulations. It is a beautiful country. And having moved to the U.S. too, I recognize, I mean, we really do, to your point, live in such a beautiful world that maybe we've taken for granted. Yeah. Where are you from in Canada? So I was born north of Toronto, actually, in a small town. My father was teaching north of Sudbury, if you know where that is. I know where it is, and I'll tell you why. Uh, when, when I was growing up in Mexico, my mother really wanted us, our ch- the children, to learn English. So she sent me to summer camp in a place called Perry Sound. Yes. You are kidding. What a small world. Very small, beautiful um, lake called Manitou Wabing Lake. And that's where I learned, you know, my first skills in photography, how to canoe, how to, how to be in cold water. That's, uh, I think it was my training to becoming Canadian. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I'm from Manitowaj. That's where I'm from. So it's out by Manitoulin Island. So I was born there and the family moved down when I was two. So, cause they wanted us to grow up in the city and have some of the experiences, you know, from that. But I think it's fair to say that uh, that's in the Georgian Lakes area. It's probably one of the most beautiful parts of Canada, really, of the world. Yeah, it's spectacular. And and maybe this is a good place to start. I know that you travel around the world as a photographer. Are you exclusively a National Geographic photographer? No, I'm not. Um, National Geographic only um, contracts photographers uh, for work. So there's no photographers on staff. And I really haven't done any work for them since 2017 when we really started working fully with Sea Legacy and all of a sudden I didn't have time to dilly-dally with National Geographic anymore. (laughs) Okay, well, I understand that. And and we're going to get to that because I really do want you to explain at length what you're doing. I thought it would be really fun to start with really my discovery, my self-discovery of you. I think you know it's Lady and the Goose. I saw this picture, of course, a mutual friend of ours, Erica Hilton, had this picture. She was putting together a special show for you. 
in Chicago. I knew nothing about you, Christina, and I saw that picture and said, this is a modern day Rembrandt. I wonder if you could share a little bit about the story behind Lady and the Goose, and, and that'll be a great launch for us. Yes. For, first, um, I'll tell you that I, I, well, I'll tell you the story of how I became a photographer and, and why the reference to Rembrandt really matters. But I was a young mother at the time and just starting in photography. And I, I, I really didn't like the, you know, the automation of modern DSLR cameras. I was looking for some more organic way of taking pictures. I was traveling with my family through China, and this was my husband's trip. It was a conservation trip. We were looking for several species of really rare monkeys in very remote parts of China. So we had our three kids, and we were just going from village to village. So I found this little Rolleiflex camera, one of those single reflex cameras. You know, you lift the top, and you can see things, and they're usually inverted. I found it in a market. And I bought film for it, and I literally was just learning how to use it. Uh, we were in Yunnan, which is in the southwestern corner of China, bordering Tibet, up in the mountains. And we, we stopped for lunch, and we were having lunch in a little market, and I was just fooling around with this camera when into the frame walked this woman, and she had the goose in her head. And I, I thought, it's not peculiar, you know, to have that goose. So I just stood up and went to where she was and because I had just learned how to meter the light because we have to do manual exposure I just took three frames she happened to be walking in front of a door and everything behind her went into black and this little camera makes a four by five slide like big slide so the detail is so rich and so beautiful but of course I didn't know that at the time you know this was film I, I three photos two are completely blurry you know goose's panicking the third one is is the one that you know and when I when I got it back months later back home in Virginia I, I knew that it was a special photograph and so I didn't do anything with it for 15 years I just sat on it until I decided to launch my career as a fine artist and then I thought you know what uh, the lady with the goose, she's the one. Yeah. Oh, what a way to start. And truly, there's something, you know, I don't know, was there something you saw? Was it an impulsive thing as a photographer that it just captivated you? It was so unusual? Well, I think it was the color of her clothing, um, the, the striking red hat, and and then, you know, these animals sitting on her head. And the, the goose was pretty much chill, you know. He was pretty calm, ex except that she had one of his legs um, with a little string, and every once in a while he would do that, like a little panicky. But the whole scene was crazy. And when you travel in these rural places, uh, you see people carrying all sorts of interesting things on their heads, uh, baskets full of chickens or iguanas or pumpkins, you know. And so I always find it really interesting. Oh, wow. Well, it's a great story. And for me, knowing that you, you photograph so much in nature and to see the goose on top of the woman's head suggested a hierarchy for me that we really have to pay attention to the true order of the world, that without them and without our planet... We, we don't really have anything, do we? No, that's an interesting thought. You know, I never thought about it that way, but it's true. Yeah. You know, I love your story. It's a great story. I've traveled through China, so I know how completely beguiling I think the culture is. It's so unusual, and we have so much to learn from each other. Do you travel pretty much all the time now? Are you constantly on the move? So I feel like there were two 
parts of my career. And the first part of my career had to do with the work that my first husband used to do. He was a, a primatologist specializing on uh, tropical monkeys. So we traveled a lot through Africa, Southeast Asia, and South America. And then after 20 years marriage, when I divorced and met my new partner, Paul, who's an underwater photographer, um, my skills and my training as a diver and as a marine biologist you know, all of a sudden allow me to explore this whole new ecosystem that I really hadn't even spent any time in the last 25 years. So, so travel a lot. I've been to, I, I think, 130 countries as of late count. But more recently, really, it's, it's all in the ocean. So it's not so much about seeing other cultures as it is just exploring the largest ecosystem on our planet. Wow. And some of those phenomenal pictures you have of massive size whales. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So you spent the first part of your career above the surface. You know, what I love about photography, and, and this is something that I tell, especially the women that I mentor, is I thought I wanted to be a nature photographer because I love animals. You know, at the time that I started in the 1990s, nature photography was so male dominated and it was mostly white men. And, you know, their photographs, when you look at them, you know, they're looking for action. It's that bear doing that. You know, for me, that didn't speak to me at all. So, so I like pictures of nature that are more contemplative, that invite us to, you know, when I want you to see my pictures and say, you know, I, lo I, I would love to be there. I would love to know how that feels like. So, so I, I started trying to think about that, but also about the connection of humans with nature. And when I started my career, there was, I don't think, a single photographer that was really focusing on that aspect. And I felt that it was a really feminine thing, you know, to to focus on people. And because I was traveling with these little three children in, in tow, my three kids, it was interesting that whenever you arrive in a village, especially in remote places, there's a sisterhood around the planet and other women will know that you probably need help with these children and they will, you know, immediately pick up and invite you in and help you. And so that gave me a passport into the intimate lives of people. <laughs> that probably is not open to most men. So no, what, what a great calling card. Take your kids with you. Yeah, I had no choice, but <laughs> well, but I can't help but think of a, a couple of things. How brave Truly. And that's a heck of a lot of hard work. I've got three children of my own and know what that's like to try to juggle. And I know we're speaking to a lot of women in our audience right now that are struggling. The numbers right now for women trying to cope with COVID and work and do daycare at the same time. So almost impossible. It is. It's almost impossible. But I love that you pulled something out of this, you know, that your experience. First off, you were really breaking ground as a woman, but seeing the world differently and committed to showing the world through your eyes and not trying to step into a male perspective and compete or to do it that yeah. way. You found your own story and then you found the sisterhood. Yeah, I know. And that's uh, my advice, you know, during these horrible, unprecedented times that we're living in, we are not alone. There are other women and they're struggling too. So reach out to your neighbors, you know, let's, um, let's find that sisterhood wherever we are because it's so hard and I see mothers that are juggling work and trying to be professionals and raising all these children and not being able to, to handle it all. Yeah. But for me, you know, this aspect of not competing with men was really important. You know, you see it with Kamala Harris, you know, you have to, you, you walk such a 
fine line between being ambitious and wanting a challenge for yourself and being, you know, all the names that they call women that dare. And so I tried to use that competitiveness and my desire to, to do more as, as, as a superpower, you know, men will underestimate you always. Right. And, and that's an asset. Use that for your advantage. It's like, a, it's like an invisible suit. Yes. Yes. They will not see you. <laughs> they won't see you coming until you're already on the field and you're grabbing the shots. And then they're going to go, where did she come from? And, and how do we put her down? Oh, isn't that sad? I have to think, too, that there is such an opportunity. And we've seen, I'm just going to call it the rise of men in a way to be more supportive. I'm a firm believer. Yes, absolutely. And, and that has to do a lot with mothers teaching their boys how to, how to be better men yeah it, we have to break the cycle of um it's um it's the men empowered i mean i don't know what it is but conditioning it's conditioning i think and and not questioning where i'm a big believer in that you've got to speak up and you have to identify what your values are and make sure you instill that in your children yeah but it, isn't it true that it always it helps when you have some male allies to support and and i you know, I believe that my career has been incredibly successful because both my ex-husband and my current partner are just so supportive and so empowering. No, I think it's a really important thought and value. I think in China, they say women hold up half the sky. So the other so half, true. yeah, we, we have to work together. We, we've been sliding as women when it comes to getting ahead. And it's because I, I think we've got this fantastic sisterhood, but now we need men to come on and hear these stories, two women having an, a, a discussion right now is just as interesting to a man, I would argue, as it is to women. It is. Um, I honestly don't believe we're going to be able to solve the big problems of our planet, you know, from biodiversity loss to fascism to the, you know, the way that capitalism is exercised today, if we are not you know, inviting everybody to contribute their best ideas. And the fact that 50% of the population of the planet is still not in a position to be a participant is, is not conducive to success. You know, if you're in a boat that's sinking, you want everybody bailing water, not just the half that's male and white. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think it's, um, it's a really good assessment of where we're at right now. You know, we've got protests and things all over. and um, Yeah, and I'd like to think, you know, that the person who's going to solve some of these big problems is already born. And that person may be born in Africa or in South America. And she may not have access to school or education. So we need to, we need to find the young women around us and pick them up. Yes. And, and you mentioned that you mentored. Are you mentoring? Do you do that on a regular basis as much as you can? Or do, do people reach out to you and say, and send you fan mail or try to get a hold of you? Yes. And, you know, I, I have done formal mentorship and I find it really exhausting. I, I love the informal mentoring. I love finding somebody who just needs a little guidance, like a big sister to share some of the mistakes. And so I do a lot of that, especially with a lot of the young women that work uh, with me. Uh, Kate, my assistant uh, that you work with, is very much aligned with me. You know, we both like to pick up women around us. And so it's easy to, it's easy to find them. Generally, they come off offering yes, help okay. instead of asking okay. for help. Well, that's okay. If I, I guess, you know, they're, they're, they want to be of service to you. Yeah. To the cause, really. 
Right, because it is a cause. I love that you've got this marine biology background too. It seems like you've come full circle. You are in the water. You've, you've dove in, so to speak, to an area where you started. Yes. I, um, I was just talking about this to somebody yesterday. And at the time, in the 1980s, when I went to school, it felt to me that I needed to have that validation of the scientific knowledge in order to make it. Um, today, I would say to young people, don't waste your time trying to, you know, go go the, the path that we were indoctrinated to go into you know this the peer pressure to go into a very fancy university and put yourself in debt to get the degree you know i honestly think that we need to start a whole new mindset where we teach earth earth what do we call them uh, earth trades what are what are the, the skills that young people are going to need to contribute to a better planet? And it's not necessarily being an engineer, but being able to engineer things. Right. Wow. You know, you're speaking the language. I, I just interviewed Shermaine Cruz, and we talked about the new paradigms of leadership and that education um, and this kind of learning is going to be about having free access to Wi-Fi around the world, being able to use all the free channels that we have to do the learning, you know, and, and speaking to what you're saying, that it's, it's not the fancy, uh, expensive degrees. It's not, but I think what, what really is important is to have people that are articulating for us what the future needs to look like. Because right now, we are all focused on the nightmare that we're experiencing. And, you know, it's, it's like when you, when you roller skate, you know, if you look at something, you're going to go toward something. So, so we have to remember Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a nightmare. He said, I have a dream. And he articulated what the dream needs to be like. And there's people around us that are doing that. People like Jeremy Rifkin talking about the third industrial revolution and all the skills that people are going to need to learn to retrofit our infrastructure for a new energy and capital paradigm. Or, or, or people like um, Dr. Carlos Duarte. He penned an article last year, so hopeful and so inspiring, basically giving us the recipe for how do we save the ocean in, in this generation, the exact things that we need to be doing. And those people that are articulating a dream for us, uh, you know, we just need to follow. We, we need to give them a platform. Um, I've listened to Jeremy Ripken. I heard him speak. I think actually I was on a plane to China. I think I was flying to Beijing. And I heard him and stood up and said to my, my husband was next to me, you have to hear this man. He's got it all figured out. So I think, isn't that interesting, true visionaries? And I think you are a visionary, Christina. Your pictures are so compelling. You say you want to tell a story in your pictures. Um, I discovered a long time ago when I was a scientist, when I was a marine biologist, and, and, you know, we really believe that being intellectual and being highbrow is the way of showing our expertise. But I realized that for most people, if you don't have the education or the background or the context in any subject, you feel really stupid to participate because you just don't know. And that's how we approach environmentalism. And, and so I realized early on that using photography to lower the price of entry, to invite people into a conversation, to say, ask me what it feels like to be in these places and I'll, I'll take you there. Um, oh, I have a, did I tell you, Rose, that I'm in a, I'm in a, in a construction yard because uh, we're, we're building, we're building our boat. And so there's a lot of machinery, but hopefully not to the 
Well, we'll, we'll work with it. It is what it is. Um, you know, we'll be super organic. But I love what you just said about how you invite people in and, you know, how compelling the stories are. This is a great spot for you to share. What are you doing with these? Well, I wanted to focus uh, on the ocean specifically because it is the largest and most important ecosystem on our planet. But because we are terrestrial creatures, we tend not to think about it that way. And, and yet the ocean, which gives us half of the oxygen we breathe with, moderates the climate around the world. It provides food and jobs for a very large number of people around the planet. Is also suffering from the enormous amount of pollution that we're dumping in and for the incredible amount of marine resources we're pulling out. It is so backwards, Rose. And so I wanted to focus my energy there because I felt that there's lots of good organizations that are working on terrestrial ecosystems and terrestrial biodiversity, but very few that are actually making a dent on ocean conservation. So uh, Paul Necklin, my partner, and I, we established Sea Legacy with the intention of shining a bigger light on the ocean with two important things in mind. Asking, how do we get more eyeballs on these issues? And how do we provide the people who follow us with opportunities to participate? I think people are tired of being asked to do the least they can possibly do. People are yearning to go the full distance of their passion for the causes they care for. And so how do we do that? The second issue is funding. The way that the nonprofit versus for-profit world is established really has the nonprofit world set up to fail. We are not allowed to uh, lure the most, the most, the best talent because we are not allowed to have overhead. We're not allowed to advertise or market. So how can you get new customers and how can you raise new revenue? It, it's, a, it's a failing mentality. And so we, we used the very large social media following that Sea Legacy has been able to amass to tackle the issue of advertising. But we don't, so we don't use any of the funding that's given to us on advertising because we've been able to get a very organic following free. Uh, but what we're trying to really solve is, and it's shocking to me, of all the SDGs, all the sustainable development goals that the United Nations has given us, they're all very important and a lot of them are interconnected. But SDG 14, which has to do with life under sea, under the ocean, is the most underfunded of the SDGs. Why, why is that? I just feel like the ocean is so far out of mind, out of sight. You know, people don't think about the ocean as an important part of their lives, even though every breath you, every second breath you take comes from the sea. And it's, the ocean is a huge part of the solution for climate change, but we have to call it out. And so I, our, our goal is to get more people interested, more people participating, more people investing, and, you know. Okay. So let's stay on this for a second. How can they help? How can they, how can they reach out and help and do? What do you need? So we need a lot of things. We need a lot of things. So funding, number one. And I, I always say, to people, you know, we all have the opportunity to give and to align the resources that we have in our lives, whether those are monetary resources or our influence or our knowledge, our skills, our training. We can give all of those resources to the causes we believe in. When you do, when you align your values and your aspirations to the causes that you care and the resources that you have, you feel so good. So good. And at this moment in the history of our planet, we have to do that because we are at the crossroads. We really only have 10 years to solve our carbon problem. And, and so um, 
we, we need to do that yeah and but but there's many other ways you know think about for example this issue that i was just talking about the way that the nonprofit, the charity world is is, is structured and has been for the last 300 years you know nothing has changed it requires people to have an understanding of finance of law of policy i, I don't and i cannot do that it's daunting but you know if there are people out there that have these types of skills that have access to the infrastructure and know how to change it please do it and I think if I can offer any advice on that one Tamea Naji is someone that we had on the podcast she started a social enterprise so it is kind of a middle ground between nonprofit and for-profit so it's for-profit with a social cause and I love that so I think to your point you know if we can grab and create visionary leaders identify them, bring them up, and have them harness something like that, why can't it be win-win? Why can't you do well, fund it, so you're not dependent on government agencies and God knows what else you've got to worry about? And, and corporate, uh, the way that corporations are structured, uh, there's a lot of pretense that their corporate social responsibility problems are really going to be measured, measured to the problems, but they're not, you know? There's a lot of work that we need to be done. So I'll tell you what I did. When I decided to become a photographer, I could have easily said, you know, I'm going to be like Annie Lipovitz. I'm going to make a career as a fine art photographer, make a lot of money. Or, or, you know, I could be a commercial photographer, whatever. I said to myself, I'm going to dedicate my life to the cause that I believe in, which is the future of our planet for our children. And I believe that anybody can do that. Anybody. If you're a painter, if you're a lawyer, if you're in finance, if you're you know, we all can wear our invisible spandex suit and declare ourselves for our planet and do whatever is in our reach. It doesn't, you don't have to be a marine biologist or a diver. Sign me up. Honestly, you're so, this is so compelling. I can't imagine that any of our listeners out there aren't going to be tremendously moved. And I've said this, I've been waiting for politicians that are willing to so-called die on the sword. I want someone to say, this is what I stand for. And I am going to devote my life to it. And that's what I hear you saying. For sure. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't like being political, but I do pay attention to the politicians who care about this because you can care a lot about the economy. But if our planet's entire chemistry is going to shift massively in 10 years, it will not matter. So I feel that at this moment in time, we need to elect people who understand the science of what needs to happen. You don't need to be an ecologist or a scientist to understand that it is that diversity of species that gives our planet its living nature. Yes, pretty simple. I know there's a movie called Anthropocene that I saw done by a Canadian couple. Revolutionary, same thing. Ed Bertinsky, yeah, he's another good friend of mine. Oh, you're kidding. Okay. Uh, I had a I had a chance to meet very quickly through a mutual friend at, at the Toronto International Film Festival. And I said, there's got to be some algorithm we can come up with where you partner the investment community to put some roots behind that film because they spent their life savings. I mean, they worked super hard to get that off the ground. And then when it did so well, there was no money to really drive it around the world and showcase it. It, it really it falls again on the same problem that I was talking about earlier. You know, the for-profit sector has the largest share of the market because there is no market for love. There's no market for, you know, a living creature. And so 
if we really want the living planet, we need to massively shift the way that our money works. And I think to your point, that's an incredible insight. We are the market. So if we would take our rightful place in there and actually let it speak to what we love and what we need to protect, then it's simple. It is simple, but we really have to make that personal commitment that now is the time. So would you call yourself, this is a loaded question, and I don't know, maybe it's all of the above. Are you an artist, a scientist first, a documentarian, a planet lover of all things? Uh, you know, what, what do you identify with most? You know, I, I think um, when I die, I would love for people to remember me just as a good human being, first and foremost. But if I had to wear a label today, I would probably call myself an activist artist. I try to use my skills and talents as an artist to move uh, causes. And uh, somebody said to me once, but you cannot be a photojournalist and be an activist at the same time. I mean, those are those are fake rules that were put in place in my mind. If I'm not being an activist, I'm being inactive. And I don't know how to sit on my hands while the world is burning. I think that's pretty simple. We have to breathe. I mean, there's an action in breathing. <laughs> it's as simple as that, I think. And you've spoken a little bit about Paul. I don't want to take any of the limelight away from you, quite frankly. You know, you're my superstar here. I, I love what you're doing. I'm just going to throw it out there. Are you the better the photographer, you think? Uh, no, I think Paul is one of those gifted photographers. I don't know if you ever listened to our fellow Canadian, Malcolm Gladwell. He has an incredible podcast called Revisionist History. Christina, he's my favorite. I've listened to every single one. So if you've, if you've heard about, uh, there's an episode called Hallelujah, and he talks about uh, how Leonard Cohen, you know, the most famous, it's a Canadian hymn how it came about. And he talks about the difference between artists that are like Picasso, a true genius, you know, who can, who can put out a painting in 15 minutes and Cezanne, you know, who would take 400 tries to come up with a masterpiece. Yes. And they can both be equally stunning, but you're right. The process is different. So I would say that, that Paul is a Picasso. Uh, he, you know, we will be working in an area and I will work really, really hard to make my visions come true with my camera. Paul is like, uh, uh, so I'm Zazan, and Paul is like Picasso. People be filming with his video camera, and then he'll decide that he wants to take a couple of shots. You know, he will get in the water, and in five minutes, he will come up with something that's just truly masterful and beautiful. So I, I would say we're we're both very good in very different visions. He will look at one of my photos, and he will say, oh, there's too much space. And I'm like, yeah, that's on purpose. That's my vision. I like that peaceful sense. You know, I worked really hard. Yes. Well, I love what you're saying because that question was a little bit of a setup and what I wanted to get to, and I'm sorry for that. I wanted to get to the vision because I think you said it early. Your visions are different and maybe that's true for everyone who's looking at life, let alone behind a camera. Yes, I think, you know, our photography as an art form is very different than most others because you really are the architect of the image and your your camera and your lens, you know, you can point them in any number of ways. And it's always shocking when you work with other photographers. Paul and I have a whole series of photographs and the hashtag is shoulder to shoulder because we're standing right next to each other. But the vision is so different. And I always want to bring an element of femininity and peacefulness and that connection and emotion to my photos. And Paul, as a man, often tries to bring that element of action and adventure and is equally beautiful, I think. Equally beautiful. I, I love that. Hashtag shoulder to shoulder. 
that's just, it says so much about our planet and standing together and women and now all of it. That's so true, you know, and I was thinking about asking our friend Erica Hilton, because she has the beautiful gallery Hilton Asmus in Chicago that represents both of us. And I was going to say to Erica, let's do a shoulder to shoulder exhibit, you know, and show Paul what he came up with, what I came up with, and let the, let the audience decide. Honestly, and I can see a book that way where you're shoulder to shoulder in your pages, Paul, Christina, Paul, Christina, or maybe Christina, Paul, Christina. Paul. <laughs> we honestly don't compete and uh but but it's always surprising when we're like oh you were shooting that same thing too and yeah but I love that you're not comp- well and you've got a singular vision the two of you and I think that's what makes you know um but you sound like you've got just a great relationship and I and I love the fact that you're able to work together you know and be able to do that not not every spouse is you know couples able to do this yeah you know and I, I was married for 20 years before a and I was one of those I got married so young and I had my children and I raised my grandson and my ex-husband was 20 years older than me so he was very fatherly and very controlling and by the end of my marriage I realized how much I had surrendered of myself so for this new marriage we are not married we very purposely decided that you know we can be equal partners without ever being married and we can run parallel businesses without mingling each other's money so we ha- we're very much a couple but I have my own business and I make my own money and I hire my own staff and he does the same and that's nice and you can leverage and learn off of each other as well which is a beautiful thing I think that you're really blazing a trail for for women I I love that you also you know, you're connected to your audience. I see that in what you're doing and you're posting in your social media. You've got a massive, is it like a million and a half followers I saw on Instagram or million and a half. And I have dreams to get 2 million by next year. <laughs> okay. So everyone listening, let's, let's make it happen. Yeah. Hash, uh, it's a, at MIDI. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At MIDI. But I'll tell you who they are. So when I look at the background behind the scenes of my social media following, it's mostly women a lot of them Latin American, ages 18 to 35. And so that's a a really important demographic because these are young women that are about to become parents that are going into the workforce. I've made all the mistakes in the book. I've, you know, gone through all the difficult paths. If I can spare them a little bit and, you know, share that, you know, the things that make you afraid are sometimes the right things to do. It's, hope hope and power and inspiration are on the other side of fear. Yeah, and fear is not a bad thing. I think we also say see fear and and I think you and I are a product of a, a generation too still of women where our mothers didn't have quite the freedom. We had more and we had access to education and to thinking outside of what we grew up in. But taking that leap and going the next level was not something I know on a personal level like you, I didn't conceive of doing. Oh, no, no, no. It was really difficult, you know, and um, I, I bet you and I are roughly the same age. My father, you know, who did not approve of me becoming a marine biologist, he literally said, you're going to starve. You're going to come back here and then nobody's going to want to marry you. I mean, I sure you heard all that litany, you know, certain type of, you know, the girls that get married and, and I did it all, you know, and I don't, I don't regret it, but I wish that my 23-year-old self back then making those decisions had known a lot of the things I know today. 
not because I would have made any different decisions because I would have known more. Yes. And your eyes would have been open maybe a little earlier because I I feel exactly the same way. I think we are very similar in many ways. For young people today, that's the biggest thing that you know, we see on Womanscape, it's about tackling that challenge, seeing the challenge as an opportunity and not to be afraid of what's on the other side because failure is just a step along the way. It is not a bad thing. Not a bad thing, but I, you know, I think, you know, and I see it in myself and I see it in people, women close to me that I love. The thing that we're most afraid of is not failure. It's how others will see us and what they will say about us. And I, I think if we can let it go, just have to let it go. You know, I call it the peanut gallery, the little voices in my head, my girlfriend saying, you know, that's not feminine. That's not girly. That doesn't make you look good. And I find that now even, well, aren't you at a point in life where you're sort of happy and you don't need to do certain things? Why don't you, because, because that's what I do here. Why are you, why are you doing this? You don't need to be doing this. So what are you supposed to do? Retire, become matronly, play bingo? I mean, what? Yeah, well, and that's it. Uh, you know, I hope that I never run out of interests like you and I, I don't lose passion for the things that I care about. Curiosity. Yeah, curiosity is a massive driver. So I honestly, um, there are so many things that are compelling about what you do, how you find your stories. I want to ask this because as a, as a fledgling, super, super green photographer, have you had experiences where, oh God, the shot came, I got it, it was easy, it was fluid, yes. Does that happen like that for you very often? Or is it, you know, I, I heard you talking about work, but how does, how does it happen? Photography for me has been almost, because I speak several languages, so the parallel is similar. You know, when you learn another language, you first learn a few words, and then you learn the verb, the actions, and then you're able to put it in small sentences that are still pretty rudimentary. That's probably where you're at. Pretty soon you become fluid, and you at least know what you're doing. But one day, if you practice enough, you're able to do poetry. And that is a, a total progression, you know, of having an idea and knowing what the equipment can do and then seeing the situation and understanding how to put all the pieces together to achieve a certain thing. And so it's a toolkit that you will acquire over time. Uh, I, I will say this, to be a photographer, you fail 90% of the time because there's so much that needs to happen simultaneously correctly for things to really flow beautifully, but you will get there. Oh, that's very encouraging. Thank you. And I love the idea of poetry. That speaks to me. The words speak to me. And so before we get to what your last, what your next adventure is, I want to just briefly talk about She's Mercedes for a minute. I know that they were a great sponsor and they are doing some really great, interesting work around the world in trying to lift women up and point out how empowered and how much they contribute to progress. What's your experience been with that? I know this is five years for them. It's an anniversary time too. Yeah, first of all, I'm really honored to be included included in the roster of She's Mercedes. There's been some extraordinary women featured in the series and um, it's been super easy to work with them. They're very organized. They're very capable. Uh, They made it so easy for, for me to just do the part that I need to play and, and, and that is just be myself. And they followed me around with a camera and it was a piece of poetry that they put together. Um, it didn't, you know, I was worried because I'm, I'm, you know, that I subscribe to this idea of enoughness of living with less and, and being happy with less. So I didn't want to be promoting a car 
but it didn't feel to me like I was uh, out there to sell a vehicle, uh, and instead to sell a, a mindset. And so I really appreciate uh, She's Mercedes. They've been great to work with. Honestly, I recognize that. Same thing with that Womanscape. I recognize that, you know, they are one of the companies stepping up, looking at how do we go carbon neutral? How do we do these things? What is progress? And progress can sell. Yeah, it's a step, you know, and, and, and yes, for sure, at this point in our history of humanity, we don't need any more incremental changes. We need companies like Mercedes that are shifting completely their business model to address the times that we're living in. Yeah, now uh, now Mercedes is involving me in a mentorship of uh, not just women, but younger people. So I'm very excited. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan. I'm a really big fan. I mean, I would buy a car now, and this isn't an ad for them. <laughs> There's nothing in this. But truly, I think we are all shopping now with mindsets. Um, we want to invest in companies doing good things. So uh, before we roll out, I want to ask you where you're headed to and what's left for Christina Mittemeyer to... Uh, to do in this great big blue earth? So I'm, I'm in my early 50s and, and I recognize that what I do is very physical and very, uh, you know, it takes a lot of energy. So I don't have another 20 years, you know, I may have 10, 15. I, Paul and I have always wanted to sail around the world, spend time at sea. So last year we bought a boat. We called it the Legacy One because we're putting it to the service of our organization. The boat is here in um, Annapolis, Maryland, where we are, and we are outfitting it for an expedition around the world. We're leaving in six weeks. And so we're starting in the Bahamas, and from there, we don't know. We don't know. We'll see where the current takes. Wow. Well, you probably don't need any advice, but I've got a great friend, Denise Benson, who sailed the world with her husband for two years when they first married, before they had children, and they let the sail take them. Follow the trade winds. Yeah, and she said she's never looked back. That was one of the best gifts they gave to themselves. Yeah, Paul and I know that if we don't do it now, we'll never do it. And uh, we want this boat to be a platform for storytelling and ambassador for our oceans. We want the Sea Legacy One to arrive in any port and for people to feel like they're invited and welcome into this conversation about the future of our planet. And I'm very excited. Oh, I'm so excited for you. It's new. It's a secondhand boat. Where is it big? How big is it? It is. It's big. Uh, it's a 60-foot uh, catamaran, uh, aluminum, so it looks very military, uh, big orange sails. It's beautiful. And you know, you know how to work everything? Are you a, a bona fide? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we never sailed. I mean, I've, always, I've been, I spent a lot of time on boats, but I, we, I've never been in charge of plotting the route and, and actually sailing. So it's learning. A new, new adventure. Fantastic. Wow. Well, I can't thank you enough for spending time and really sharing your wisdom and your gifts with the world and with our Sipping on Stories audience. Likewise to you, Rose McCartney, and uh, thank you for what you do and for inspiring women. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. And I'm going to just encourage everyone to look at the links that we'll have, Christina, to see legacy and sharing this. And we'll see if we can pound the pavement a little bit and contribute and help you build. So thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks to Kate and have a great day. All right. While we are still rolling... Um, there are so many words of wisdom to take away today. What a privilege to have Christina Minnemeyer. She is a visionary. You see behind the lens what goes on in her fertile mind, bringing the marine biology, coming full circle, and, and having gone through you know, all of the 
growth pains of education and motherhood and exploring and getting to know self better. She's now in a fantastic position where she's dedicated her life to saving the planet. I'm going to encourage everyone to share this episode. I'd like you to share every episode on Sipping on Stories, but I'm going to encourage you to share this one and to take a look at the Sea Legacy, take a look at the incredible art that Christina has created, her work. We didn't even get a chance to talk about the attention that she is drawing to Aboriginal peoples around the world as well. She's got a fantastic eye. I'm going to predict that these are going to be collector items, particularly the Lady and the Goose. I'm still in love with that one. But here's what I'd like you to know. Please hit that subscribe button for Sipping on Stories. I'd love you to visit our website as well, sippingonstories.com. We'll have all kinds of links and eventually some great swag up there. Going to ask you to take a look at the YouTube and you can watch the interaction between Christina and I today. There's something great about feeling like you're sitting around a table sipping on something with two people and just having a conversation. So here's the takeaway. The takeaway is... It's super important if we ignore our oceans, we will not have a future. The oceans are everything. We need to take a look at the social, the political, the economic, everything about the ramifications of ignoring the importance of water and our sea life. Please, if you do nothing else, I want you to sip on this a little longer. Know that you are loved. Know that you are super important. Every day matters. Your story matters. Take away courage. Take away the bravery to put yourself out there. Don't worry about what others say. Overcome the doubt, as Christina reminds us. And I look forward to seeing you again for another episode of Sipping on Stories. Take care, everyone. That's a wrap.